0: Revelation 20 and verse... We're going to pick up at verse 11 this morning. Then John says this. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead were judged each one of them according to what they had done then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire into the lake of fire, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? You know where that comes from? It comes from Genesis chapter 18. It comes from Genesis 18 verse 25 and it comes from the two angels, the Lord and two angels, appeared to Abraham. He was sitting in the shade of a tree, and they, they they come, and he goes and fixes them a meal, and then they tell Abraham, look, we're going to Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, the next chapter, we see the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you remember what happened at that time, Abraham had a lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember his nephew, Lot? He's in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham hears this, and and. Shall, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? And then he enters into this, uh, this conversation with the Lord. And he says, what if you find 50 in, the, in that section? And then, and then he gets all the way down after this. What if you find, you know, five less? What if you find five less? And God says, I won't overthrow it if I find that. He gets all the way down to 10. Well, the Lord says, I will overthrow it if I find 10. The implication is there are none righteous there. Now, Lot ends up being saved. Lot ends up being saved, his wife and uh, his daughters. And then you remember his wife looks back, turns to the pillar of Saul. So it's just Lot and his daughters. But in that Abraham, what, what seems to be behind that statement from Abraham, shall not the judge of the earth. There's an understanding that God is the judge of the earth. And shall he not do what's right? What, what seems to be behind that are the righteous and the wicked going to suffer the same fate? I mean, if you're going to overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah, what about the righteous people that are there? Are they going to suffer as well? And then they enter into that little deal in which we clearly see that the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, there weren't any righteous there. There weren't any righteous there. I want you to keep your finger in Revelation 20, and I want you to go to Psalm 73. I want you to go to this psalm. I really was struggling last week in in the unfolding of everything and seeing what has happened and what continues to happen and who knows where we're going to be and who knows what's going to happen, and I thought, you know... I need to address it, and, 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 and somehow, and there, there were other passages and so forth I'm thinking through, but then, then I came back to know what we need to hear is exactly what John addresses and what John sees in the end of Revelation 20. What we need to understand right now in this time is we need to understand the end of the wicked. We need to have a long view here. Not a short-term reaction to circumstances and, you know, getting a tizzy fit. And it, We need to have a long-term view here because I think the scriptures call us to that. I want you to look at Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph. Similar to Psalm 37, some of the same themes in Psalm 37. In Psalm 37, it's, don't be envious of evildoers. Don't you be envious of them. They will fade like the grass. And in Psalm 73, Asaph, he says, he starts by saying, truly God is good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. Now, he comes to this conclusion after a long struggle of dealing with seeing unrighteousness seem to win the day. Of seeing unrighteousness what appeared to him, the wicked going unpunished. And this is where he goes in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. You feel that way right now? Man, I'm almost, I'm almost, <laughs> I, I, boy, I don't know. I mean, we've gone through a virus. We've gone through this and we've gone through that. And verse 4, for they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, with hatred. Loftily, they threaten oppression. You see that? Loftily, they threaten oppression as if they are all. They set their mouths against the heavens. Implying they set their mouths against God. And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore. His people. Turn back to them. And find no fault to them. In them. And they say. How could God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold. These are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches, all in vain have I kept my heart clean, and washed my hands in innocence. You see Asaph's struggle here? I've followed God. They're not. They're prospering. I'm not. So, for all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, I'm wrestling with this, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with unrighteousness winning the day, at least apparently. It seemed to me a wearisome task. Doesn't the news cause you weary? does not social media right now causing you weary? So I say get out of it. And then you see verse 17. This struggle was intense until until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went to church. Or better yet, until I opened the word of God. Then I discerned their end. Then I understood what awaits them. You see how he continues in the Psalm, verse eighteen: Truly, you set them, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to run. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away. Literally, by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall what? Perish. You see it? Then I understood therein. What's going to happen to them? They're going to perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It didn't end with Asaph selfishly holding himself up somewhere, safe and secure in the knowledge that he was seeking God. You know where it ends? When he realized their end and when he realized that the wicked will perish, when he realized that everyone who is unfaithful to God will be brought to an end, what did he end this with? That I may tell of all your works. He was driven to speak about this God. He was driven to warn people He was driven, and let me put it in New Testament language, he was driven to be faithful with the gospel. He understood their end. What exactly is their end? Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 11. The wicked unbelievers will perish. That is, unless they do what? They turn now. You see, now, today is the day of salvation. There's coming a day when it's not. But if they turn now, God will save them, Christ will save them. But if they don't turn, they're going to perish. Their end is judgment. Their end is judgment. Do not be envious of them. Don't look at the news and see all this mess. Don't be envious of them. Don't do that. Don't be afraid of them. One thing our leaders need to understand, and I say this both of Democrats and Republicans, and I say this not only of this nation, but I say this of the Chinese Communist government, the Russian Communist government, any government on the face of this earth, any nation on the face of this earth, what they need to understand is that there is a sovereign king who is over all of that. And they need to understand that when they deal with Christians and when they deal with believers, we are citizens of that kingdom. He is our king. We are kingdoms of this. We are citizens of this kingdom. We are citizens. We have dual citizenship. But our first allegiance is to our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is sovereign over these so-called leaders and as long as with Paul when Paul tells us as long as we pray and we pray for those who are over us and what do we pray? we pray that they will let us lead a quiet and peaceful life and that we can have the freedom that we've enjoyed in this country that we have abused because freedom meant the freedom to be faithful to our God. Not the freedom to do as we please. And as long as they allow that, we play nice. The minute they take that, our allegiance is to our king. And in order to stand in that, then we have to understand and have the long view and understand their end their end is destruction they will perish John shows this he he, he reveals this there's two things that he sees you remember last week as we were dealing with the end of chapter or the first part of chapter 20 dealing with the millennium and sort of unfolding that and what that how that will kind of come to play remember I told you it's 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 my position that Christ comes back before the millennium that there is a resurrection of the just before that millennium and then after that there's another resurrection and that's the resurrection that John mentions when he says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended and if you remember if, if, if I'm right in seeing that unfold that way then in that second resurrection those are unbelievers they're not believers separated by this period, this age of Christ ruling and reigning if you remember too, the thing about the millennium, we're not told much about it other than here it is, and we're not even told why. Why is there a millennial reign? There's been all kind of speculation about that. Some have said it's a vindication of Christ. Christ comes and shows, I am king. He's finally going to come and show one day these rulers who is king, right? Others have said, well, it's sort of like, a, 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 like like he's setting things in order before we get to the new heavens and the new earth. I told you last week, I think at the heart of it is what it's showing us is that the true, the true rebellious nature of human beings does not come from circumstances. It doesn't come from our environment. It doesn't come because we don't have the right political situation or economic situation or the right president or whatever. That's not where it comes from. True rebellion Comes deep within the heart of every single individual. And as you look at that, if the millennium unfolds with Christ ruling and reigning here, the very people who are under his rule and reign at the very end are the ones who fall to Satan in the temptation to join him one last time. You remember that section there? He's got to be released. He's released, and what does he do? He deceives the nations. I mean, how in the world could someone sit under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ in his full ruling and reigning and in the end rebel? It's because the true nature of wickedness and evil and sin resides within our hearts. I think that's one of the things that John's showing in that millennium. So what happens right after this? Remember, Revelation 19 and 20, they go together. So what we see after that is we see the judgment. We see the final judgment. Now understand this. This is the final judgment. There, the, there are all sorts of temporal judgment judgments that God uh, hands out. You remember the flood. The flood was a temporal judgment. It was not a final judgment. It was severe, though, right? But yet Noah found grace and repopulates the earth and so forth. So it wasn't final We may be going through temporal judgment right now. We've we've talked a lot about this with COVID. Is God speaking in judgment? I think he is. I think he's speaking in judgment so loud and clear. It's a temporal judgment. It's not the final judgment. But all these temporal judgments point to the final judgment. All right? It's a reminder that the final judgment's coming. So what's the first thing that he sees here? The first thing that he sees, and look, this is an unearthly scene. We've seen in the book of Revelation, right? We've seen scenes in heaven. We've seen scenes on earth. We've seen John's kind of been both and we see this and sometimes it gets hard to try to discern exactly how all of this unfolds and and Revelation doesn't follow this timeline just, you know, so nice and neat. Although I think we've been since 19, the second coming of Christ, I think there is sort of a discernible timeline. And the very last thing that John sees before the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 21 and 22 is this final act of judgment. This is an unearthly scene. It's a terrifying scene. So what's the first thing that he sees? The first thing that he sees is he sees the judge. He sees the throne. You see this in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. Now we've seen the throne of God four and five, right? We've seen it already. We've seen the the majesty of what that was like early on in the book of Revelation. And now he sees this great, this great white throne. White majesty, justice, glory, power. You see, he doesn't see a black throne, does he? He sees a great, the greatest implied here. He sees a great white throne. Look at chapter 22. When we get there, we'll see this. Verse 1, And the angel showed me the river of water, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. Even though what we see in 20, God's not said specifically to be sitting on the throne. It's an obvious implication, isn't it? We get later here, we see this is the throne of God. And notice this, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And then you look down at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God. And the Lamb will be in it. He sees this throne. He sees it in all of its glory. All of its majesty. And God is on the throne. Because you notice what he says. And him who was seated on it. The only one that could be seated on this throne is God. The only one that could be seated on it is God. This is... this. Some of the background to this is obviously Daniel chapter 7. If you remember, when we went through the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees this, this magnificent scene, this throne, God sitting on his throne. And so what we read here is that he sees the one who was seated on it. This is God. And notice this description. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no more place was found for them. I don't don't get the picture that God's on his throne and he's mad at the earth. It's just language. It's just language that's showing us the sheer sovereignty of this judge. That even the earth, even earth and sky is under his control. Everything is under his control. So what we're seeing is this great white throne, and there's one seated on it who has absolute sovereign power over everything. Now this is the one you got to deal with. This is the one you got to deal with. This is the one everyone's going to deal with. This is Judge. But notice the second thing that he sees here. After he sees the great white throne and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And then verse twelve, and I saw the dead. So he sees people. All right. This is, this is key to understand. What, what he sees after the throne is he sees people, the dead. Exactly who are the dead? Well, back in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now, if the way that I think this is going to unfold is correct, then the rest of the dead are unbelievers. So what John sees before this great white throne and this absolute sovereign judge He sees unbelievers. He sees unbelievers. Now you see why Asaph said, I man, I was just, boy, I was just envious of them and I thought they've got it made until I understood their end. What's their end? Their end is they're going to find themselves. And notice the language here. They're not slouching. They're not sitting. They're not mulling around saying, what in the world are we doing here? They're not mulling around and, and cracking jokes and carrying on. And hey, look, old Fred's here. And hey, what's this? It's not, it's not any of that. They're standing before the sovereign judge of all the universe. And notice what he says. I saw the dead. Notice this description, great and small. This isn't just the Hitlers of the world. I saw the dead great and small. I saw all Unbelievers from every walk of life. Good, so called moral people, and evil, immoral people. Rich, poor, great, and small. These unbelievers come from all walks of life. These unbelievers are your neighbors. These unbelievers are people you rub shoulders with every day. These unbelievers are in our families. This is not just a judgment on ISIS. Sobering, isn't it? Sobering. I saw these dead, John says. The great and small. And they were standing before the throne. This is not party time. Again, they're not slouching, they're not lounging about. They are standing because they can't do anything else. Notice what else he says. He says standing before the throne, and then he mentions books. He doesn't say how many. He just says books were opened. Now, don't think of this as a trial. This is not a trial. Their fate is sealed here. Their end is sealed. It's over it's done. There's no bargaining. There's no, please, second chance. There's none of that. It's over. They're standing awaiting sentencing. And these books are open. Now, the best way that I can explain these books, because we're not told anything about these books, the best way that I can explain these books is these books seem to be the evidence against them. That's what it seems to be. So he sees these books opened, and then he says, another book was opened. Now, this is the decisive book. Because the other book that's open, and he describes this, or he says, this book, which is the book of life. And we've already seen this book already in the book of Revelation. And this book of life has its roots all the way back into Exodus. Where Moses is saying, don't block me out of your book. And then we see reference to it in other places in Scripture. We see it references to it in the book of Revelation itself. So, what you have are these books. They're standing before the throne. These books, we're not told where they're open, we're not told how many. We're just told there are books that were open. And then there's another book, and it's the book of life. It's the book of life, it's the decisive book here. And it appears to be, when you take all the evidence of Scripture, and this is mentioned in several places. It's not like just one or two places where it's talked about. Again, I mentioned Exodus 32. Moses, you know, blot me out of your book. Don't blot me out of your book. It's mentioned in Daniel chapter 12. It's mentioned there. Our Lord talks about, in Luke chapter 10, there in verse 20, when they're coming back and they're saying, look how great we did. He says, don't you rejoice over this. Just be thankful that your names are written in heaven where would they be written it must be this book right Philippians chapter 4 verse 3 Paul mentions the book of life again Revelation 3 Revelation 13 Revelation 21 we'll see it again so this is the decisive book so what is the book of life it apparently, it ha- it, it apparently contains the names of all those who are in Christ believers believers so these books are open, which these other books appear to be evidence. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Pay attention to the language. They weren't judged based on the book of life. They apparently were judged by what was written in the books. This is why I think the books would be the evidence. You want to try to stand before God and say you're not a sinner? Let's open up the books. Let's open up the books. And again, remember, this is final. So it's not like, well, I dispute that one passage there. I didn't really mean that. They're not saying a word. It's over. It's done. Shall not the judge, the sovereign judge of all the earth do what is right? You bet he is. You bet he is. And this judgment that we see here, it's unbelievable. They're standing there. These books are open. And again, I think it's the, it's, I think it's the evidence that he sees. Now notice what else that goes on here. He says the the, the, uh, dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. You see twice here. What's taking place here? There's a judgment taking place. And notice this. As if to think they were judged as a group, as a whole. No. Each one of them. Each one of them. Personally. Judged. This wasn't group judgment. It was each one of them. Now, I think the whole idea of sea, death, and Hades is just a way of saying, regardless of how they died, it doesn't matter how they died. I also think, and I'll I'll go into more of this when we get to 21, sea here, I think, is being used symbolically throughout the book of Revelation of chaos. So, in this chaotic, fallen world, it gave up its dead. No matter how they died. No matter how they died, there they are. That second resurrection, the rest of the dead came to life, standing before the sovereign judge of all there is. And he's judging them, and he's opened these books. And there's the book of life. And then notice verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We've already seen this in in chapter 20. We're dealing with the millennium. Remember the second death? Don't you be part of the second death. You don't want to be in the second death. If you're in the first resurrection, you remember that? You're in the first resurrection, second death has no power over you. But if you're in the second resurrection, you're being raised to death. What is the second death? Well, the second death is the lake of fire. That's what John says here. What is the lake of fire? The lake of fire is hell. The lake of fire is hell. You remember earlier in the book of Revelation the description of the judgment of God on the ungodly and that description of hell? You remember that that terrifying description that John gives of what God's going to do in pouring out his wrath? The the most vivid imagery that comes from that is, you remember the wine press? He's trotting the wine press of his wrath and what's being thrown into this wine press are the unbelievers and what's coming out of that is a river of blood. All that vivid imagery of the wrath of God for all eternity. That's the lake of fire. That's the second death. That's where they're going. That's what they're being cast into. Along with, notice death and Hades. And in verse 15, as if there was needed to be some clarification here. Uh, Exactly who's going to be there? Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, that's why the book of life is the decisive book. All these other books, there must be evidence. Solomon ends the book of Ecclesiastes by talking about how we are to fear God and keep his commandments. And then the very last thing he says is he talks about a judgment. And what he says in that judgment is, don't you understand in that judgment, every idle thought, every word, everything, God does not forget. And the language is, it's being recorded. And it's going to be used as evidence in the judgment. Do you want your thoughts laid bare? Do you want your heart exposed in this way? Everything. This is horrible. This is absolutely horrible, but again, remember it 's final. this is it. Paul in second in Timothy chapter four says, Christ will judge he 's going to come he 's going to judge the living and the dead, it is appearing he 's going to judge. Let me say a word about this because it, it doesn 't come up who 's here in this judgment it's clearly unbelievers. Believers are not here if you 're in Christ. You don't fear this judgment because you're not here. If you are in Christ, Christ has taken all of the punishment. Christ has taken when He died on the cross and shed His blood for you and you were covered in the blood of Christ. He has taken all of the wrath of God for your sin on Himself. And so we're not here as believers. There is indication in other places, Romans 14 and some places in Corinthians, where Paul talks about the judgment seat of Christ. But that's not a judgment about sin. This is a judgment about sin. This is a judgment for those who have no Savior in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're not here. You don't need to fear this judgment. This is unbelievers. Second Peter, Peter talks about the unrighteous kept. They're being kept under punishment until the judgment. I want you to go to Matthew 25, though. Because some might say, well, this is just John and Revelation carrying on about this and, you know, I mean, come on. Jesus is a loving Savior, right? I mean, Jesus wouldn't talk like this. You know, he spoke probably more than anybody in the New Testament about hell and judgment. And then you get to a place like Matthew chapter 25. And this is what he says in verse 31 When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne. He will sit on his glorious throne. Is this the throne? The great white throne? Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come! You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed? You or thirsty and give you drink. When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in person? Uh, in person and visit you and the king will answer them truly i say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers you did it to me now i don't think this is work salvation it's not it's what god has done in and through us it's the fruit of, of, of a life of following christ but then notice this verse 41 then he will say to those on his left depart from me you cursed and to eat the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. And you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in person or in prison? And did not minister to you, and then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of one of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, to eternal life. See, this is Revelation 20. This is the great white throne. The books, the books must contain this type of information. You see, it's the evidence. It must contain this type of information. The unbelievers will perish. The unbelievers will be judged. And John gives this description of what he sees of this great white throne of judgment and the people that are there. The people that are there. Jude talks about a judgment. Jude talks about the great day of judgment. In fact, it's throughout the New Testament. The New Testament writers are always talking about, again, and it comes back to what what did Abraham say? Shall not the judge of the earth do what's right? Is he just going to let wickedness go? Is he just going to let it run? Is he just going to let them, you know, have their party and do this and think, is he going to do it? No, eventually he's going to move. Eventually he's going to act. Eventually. There comes the great white throne of judgment. Now, as a believer, we have to have this long end in view. Or I'll drive myself crazy. You see how? If I didn't really understand and know that in the end, this wickedness, this evil, is going to be judged and done away with, I just might as well go crazy. Either that or I might as well panic now because I better grab everything I can and hold on to everything I can and make sure that, that, man, my stuff and my my life is secure. I better do all that. Now, there may be some wisdom in doing some of that. But to do it out of a sense of panic because this is all there is to it is sin against the sovereign God. It is a denial that the sovereign judge one day We'll set things right. It is not seeking His kingdom. It is not seeking His kingdom. You remember what Jesus said, seek first His kingdom and then all these other things will be what? They're going to be added. They're going to be taken care of. They're going to be taken care of. This is the final act before we get to the new heavens and the new earth. It's the final act. And as I said earlier, you remember where this drives Asaph, where he ends up? He ends up saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to talk about your wonderful works. Let me tell you, we don't say this. We don't hold to this. I don't open a passage like this and preach through it and teach through it with, 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 with you know, this glee and gloating and saying, ha ha, you evil politicians, you're going to get your due. I tell you what, as believers, we do it with tears in our heart. We do it with broken hearts because I understand their end if they don't turn to Christ. What it should do is it should drive us to evangelism. It should drive us to be clear, crystal clear about the gospel. We had better get ready because a fight over the gospel is coming. It's already started. It's already started in our own denomination. We better be crystal clear about the gospel, and we had better be crystal clear because people are going to want to know when you talk about a passage like this. What's the one thing people are going to want to know? How in the world do I get my name in that book of life? You get your name in there because it's all a grace. You get your name in there because God had mercy on you. And you get your name in there when you see your sin and you call out to Christ and you cry out to Him to save you. Because He's the one who died on a cross, was buried and raised the third day. He's the one who shed His blood for you. And you call out to Him and you say to Him, Save me. I can't save myself. And it goes deeper than just wanting to avoid the great white throne, and avoid hell. You begin to see that you've sinned against this holy and righteous judge. And you cry out to Him to save you. And you know what He does? He saved you. Do you know where your name is written? In heaven. You know where your name's written? It's written in the book of life. And when this final act comes... And this book of life evidently is opened. And there you are. You don't face this judgment. You don't face it. You're on the right. And what are you told? Come. It's time to get your inheritance. See it. This is how, with this understanding, is how I can wake up tomorrow and function in a chaotic, fallen world. And not panic and not be afraid. And I am not going to join them. One last word. This is a sobering passage from our Lord in Matthew 7. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, and there's no indication whatsoever that this is a parable. The indication is this, this, this probably is going to happen. When would it happen? Where would it happen? At the great white throne, what we just saw. You remember the dead, small and great? Unbelievers from all walks of life? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. What is the will of the father? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his will. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22. On that day. What day? Revelation 20. On that day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? See, this is not Hitler. You understand that? This is this is this is not. You know, Stalin, this is not some evil dictator. These are moral people. Good moral people. And the indication is they're good moral people in church. And in verse 23, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. How will he declare it? They're not in the book. And then he will say to these people Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Anything else need to be said?